0: This book can act as a really unique kind of inauguration of a call to begin to take seriously the motions of subversive opposition.
1: It's a timely book in a very untimely way. So
2: this is a guerrilla guide to refusal. And so when you move through this tripartite legalist history, it's very clear as to the stakes of the refusal, but also what are the requirements?
3: Capitalism defeated traditional societies because it was more exciting than they were. But now there is something more exciting than capitalism itself. It's destruction. Hello, my name is Andrew Culp. I'm so excited to invite others for a conversation today on my recent book, A Guerrilla Guide to Refusal, published with the University of Minnesota Press in 2022. It's part of a Longer series of works that I've completed, including an earlier book on Deleuze. Occasional work, including cybernetics, radical theory, uh, other forms of philosophy. And currently also releasing a video project called Machines in Flames. That's a collaboration about a militant group in the late 70s and 80s in France, asking questions of the archive and destruction. And currently working on a project on hacker culture right now. And I'm joining everyone today from Los Angeles, also known as the Occupied Lands of the Tongva.
1: Hi, I'm Violet. I, I don't really know how to describe myself. I guess I've long been a fan of Andrew's work since Dr. Reuss came out. Also a reader of Hostess, which Andrew is involved with. Yeah, I've long been looking forward to this book. I am situated in India. I think this book especially has been really interesting in light of all the events that have happened over the last few years, like the global insurrections that took place in 2019, and then the pandemic, and then the shifts that have happened within the political hearing. And it also speaks to the kinds of impasse we face today. So in that sense, it's it's a really, well, I, I, I was going to say it's a timely book, but maybe in a Dalusian sense, it's an, un, it's an untimely book. So yes, I'm really looking forward to discussing the, the book.
0: Hi, uh, I'm Will. I'm a graduate student. I work primarily on the philosophy of disability and the later works of Michel Foucault and the relationship between abnormality and receptions and perceptions of anarchy and social order. I've long been interested in Andrew Culp's book, uh, work. (laughs) Of course, I'm I'm interested in this book. I'm here for the conversation. But yeah, I'm excited for this conversation precisely because I think Andrew uniquely taps into the problem in radical political theory of grappling with movements of divergence, of error, uh, and their relationship to the contemporary problem of biopolitics in a sort of second-order cybernetic world. So I'm excited to speak with everyone.
2: Uh, hi, my name is Jose Rosales, pronouns they, then. I've known Andrew for a while, friend, collaborator, accomplice. Also, I uh, share some editorial responsibilities for Hostess, And just happy to be here to have a conversation uh, with Andrew's second book, um, because it was um, a unique experience to chat with you, I guess, throughout the writing of the first one. And so this is going to be, it's going to be interesting.
3: That's so exciting to have everyone here today, because we've sort of known each other in a variety of roles. At various times, we've all been very online and very not online. And so it's great to have this conversation online, but hopefully spilling out into the world and taking on various manifestations beyond just a
0: conversation. Would someone like to start? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I feel like one place to start is this book is coming on the heels of what was considered in in many Deleuzian circles in the American Academy as relatively controversial. This, of course, expands the scope by quite a bit, but you're maintaining this sort of complicated relationship with Deleuze's scholarship, uh, even in just the introduction, right? There are parting shots at quite a few of the folks who we would consider today to be, like, maybe the vanguard of cosmopolitan political philosophy. Maybe before we get to our individual interpretations of the text, because I think that they're all very fascinating, maybe one way to, like, open this discussion would be what is the central problem of contemporary attempts to apprehend this post-68 radical theory? And why do you think that so much of the work on cybernetics has fallen into a kind of strange affirmation in contemporary assemblage theory?
3: Yeah, I suppose I can jump in, but I'm also just as interested to hear everyone's diagnosis of what they see to be a central problems today and the way in which the book perhaps raises some, but that we all find our own paths through, you know, in some ways the book very much is about post 68 theory, but I think that there's a way that it's been neutralized or even domesticated by the Academy. It was turned into a career area, a research area, a way for individual people to carve out a profile or even a small perch within very hierarchical elitist institutions to sort of forward their own individual interests. And so for me, some of it is a return to initially the conditions that drove this thinking. Of course, May 68, but before May 68, there's also the question of Algeria. There's the question of people's liberation movements. There's the explosion of the cultural forms of gender and sexuality that would come in and through and after 68 as well. And so it means major figures that I engage even in the introduction include Jean Genet, but they also include Guy They move through a sort of what I call subtractive communism that has nothing to do with the party or the state, And it's about thinking how those conditions have shifted and changed and where we are today. So I suppose the the opening even is this diagnosis that cybernetics and it's sort of differential metaphysics really does describe so much of how social theory and social thought, governance, movements themselves seem to operate and it's become a very convenient diagnostic system that people use but it's kind of become a little too convenient especially if we look at its proximity to its rise within public policy as a response to the race riots of the 1960s to the forms of military warfare that are dominating right now in some ways cybernetics is an explanation for why Ukraine is currently succeeding where Russia is not because they've adopted a much more autonomous Form of war fighting that cyberneticians helped embed within US, Western, and NATO war doctrine for decades now. And so when we get to the specific questions of the people we care about, which we'll just state this very plainly, we care about abolition, black freedom struggles, queerness in all of its forms, but particularly where it's made criminal or illicit forms of sexuality, and the anarchists' refusal of all forms of identity. We're now at this moment where we can reassess the failures and the successes of people's liberation movements and use that as a new framework for understanding the challenges we face today. So I would say that that's basic framework for not only the book, but I think a lot of what I've been teaching and talking about and the resources that I've been reading recently. But I'd love to hear where everyone else is situated too, because they're perhaps different corpuses and archives and problems and issues that are really motivating their thought that they see being woven through the themes and the approaches of the book, which is by no means meant to just present a a single approach.
2: In terms of just like overall general, like a general impression of the text, one of the things that struck me was the kind of cumulative effect of what happens when you write a history of a political tradition, let's say like Illegalist anarchism or uh, different forms of kind of direct action, anti state anarchist politics, or anti colonial struggles, or groups like uh, Bash Back. When you go through these histories in light of specific structural transformations, meaning uh, not just shift in the composition of the capitalist mode of production from Fordism to post Fordism, not just financialization, but the reconfiguration of a state that's adequate to ensure, quote unquote, order and security through cybernetics, through this new logic of control. Given those histories in light of this emphasis or this like criticism of the various ways cybernetics has yet to be understood to be the structuring dynamic of people who identify with these traditions or are heirs to these traditions, it kind of produces this not necessarily melancholic, but it's a quite different tone, I would say, than, than Dark Deleuze. Like, Dark Deleuze seems like it was written in one evening. I know it wasn't, but, you know, it, it moves at a pace that is fast, but not unrigorous. And this one, it moves fast and it's not unrigorous, but the result is a kind of portrait of a series of struggles. I guess overall, as a reader, it, it strikes a slightly different tone than Dark DeLoe's It's necessary insofar as you want to be critical about what you're the object of your analysis. Um, That said, the traditions also that you bring in are great insofar as, you know, you're probably listed as a (laughs) Deleuzean, at least for, you know, Anglophone readers. But, you know, in the very beginning, we have Johann Most, we have Lucy Parsons, we have the Haymarket Martyrs, and this is all about, you know, propaganda by the deed. And that situates things historically in a moment where there were... Illegalist anarchism is in its ascendancy, and it's just about to meet over a century long series of defeats and oppression and repression. That moment begins this, uh, I, in my mind, this is how I formulate the book to myself when I was uh, reading it, is that it's divided into three parts, and each part is an illegalist history of something. The first being an illegalist history of the abolition of capital and state, an illegalist history of sexuality. So if Foucault has the history of sexuality, that part could be the illegalist history of sexuality. And the third is just the illegalist history of bodies, meaning chattel slavery, settler colonization, colonization, and the national liberation struggles, anti-colonial struggles that would come in response to that. And so this through line of illegalism is at least there in some respects. But the reason why I said the tone is a bit different when contrasted with uh, cybernetics is that what you're left with, and I think it's not, it's not a paternalistic gesture, it's not uh, this kind of distanced Dornian kind of, you know, ruthlessly critical, you know, but we can't do anything about it kind of thing, but it really drives home the point, which is just necessary for anyone invested in liberatory politics, it emphasizes the point that um, anyone who identifies themselves as in some way, an inheritor of these traditions, whether it's black radical tradition, anti-colonial struggles, uh, illegalist anarchism, uh, some version of these have at various points in their best moments been an in internationalism. These are various configurations of internationalism. But what you have by the end of the book by analyzing forms, the most recent configurations of power is that you have a series of tactics, maybe even strategies devoid or divorced of not just a presently existing global movement. There's no global communist movement, et cetera, But there has yet to be some semblance of an internationalist framework. And that the internationalism that has replaced that um, is the international of, you know, capitalist peace or, you know, a resurgent uh, you know, czarism in the form of Putin to reassert a new form of global peace. That for me was the not necessarily shocking, but it really stood out in terms of this is a guerrilla guide to refusal. And so when you move through all these three this tripartite illegalist history, Um, It's very clear as to the stakes of the refusal, um, but also what are the requirements? Um, If there's going to be a politics of refusal, at least how does it answer certain questions or renew traditions that it inherits and yet cannot be effective without?
1: That was pretty amazing, whatever Jose was saying, like all of it. And I think as far as like this particular book is concerned, it is very different from Dark Deleuze in the sense that it is felt like a response to a delusion academia that had kind of neutered and really uh, neutralizes thought whereas this to me is very partisan book it's a book meant for partisans who are en- engaged in uh, the struggle right now um i think foucault once uh, described his work right right after discipline and punish was published he said that He was an artificer and whatever he writes is meant for a siege, a war or a destruction. And so this book to me feels like it's in the same lineage, like it's doing the kind of cartography of our modern political terrain and providing us with the tools and weapons to be able to proceed with respect to the roadblocks that we have encountered. Um, and it also uh, points out the ways we cannot proceed, the ways that already bring us back to the same point from where we started. I think Jose put it in a very brilliant way that running theme through all these chapters is that they are essentially illegalist histories. They're criminal histories. They're histories that were forged in the underground and spaces of fugitivity and not the official history of historians or positive political projects. So I think that's really important. And now, just to go back to what Will was saying earlier about delusion, affirmationism in academia, I think what Andrew said regarding cybernetics is really important. I, I think he said something in the chat that cybernetics is often a solution in search of a problem, and the book has no time for a technical fix. I think, in a strange way, the cybernetics. Um, the cybernet- the vision of the world offered by cybernetics uh, matches up with the vision of, uh, we see certain people who at least claim to be delusions, like um, we know the Negri's camp, etc., cetera, uh, who also envision communism as this sort of network that ultimately integrates everyone and uh, runs on the basis of some global citizenship and in a way, like this integrated whole, this this unitary system that has uh, absolutely kind of um, uh, sealed off all the holes and somehow managed to. Um, I think that there's a section of the book that describes this really, really well how the social is first cut up and then through these processes of self organization based on environmental inputs, the social is kind of reconstituted higher up. And in a way, it seems like it's almost autonomous. And what it is, is essentially the pure administration of things, And which ironically was also Engels' vision of communism, wherein the government of men would be replaced by the administration of things. So for me, this book is not only a book for partisans, it's a book that has a very partisan uh, vision of communism, which is at odds with a vision of communism that is ironically the cybernetic vision of the world itself.
3: I couldn't state it any more beautifully than people have so far. The, the book itself doesn't do any deep genealogical or historical work, though I do have a project where I'm slowly working through some of this. But I think that we're picking up the right strands where, let's say, utopian socialism of the 19th century is very much about this post-enlightenment rationalist blueprinting of the right world there still is a strain of anarchism, still strongly indebted to all of this. Everything from Fourier's phalanxes and planned communities to digital solutions to questions of voting or of representation and large meetings and sort of councilist approach. And I just don't have much time or appeal to this. And I'm really going back to that very early notion of the archi that we know from the archive, but is also a deep Mycenaean word, actually it's pre-Greek, about authority, command, being able to say something and have it immediately enacted in the world, and an archi that refuses to appeal to any sort of authority. So that means not doing things in the name of the people, or of true democracy, or any of this. It really means a world without any of those appeals. So that takes us to a very different vision of anarchism, roughly the topic of the first section, but especially when we get to issues of sexuality. It's not about finding the space, creating logistical structure to make visible or even affirm particular sexualities. It really is about this underground force of sexuality as something that's always scrambling the codes of something that is dangerous, that's perverse, that's illicit, and to really continue the force behind it. And even more so in the third section, which is in many ways about blackness, but it's just as much about aesthetically what doesn't show up, what exceeds the security camera footage, what will never show up when you circulate the image of police violence. What can we do that's not about appealing to the putative innocence of a subject who didn't deserve it, which would then thus apply that others do, and instead talk about the very means of civil society that we've built up and an outside to it? This means that it's not prefiguring any particular new world. So it means it's also a departure from that slogan, from the anti-globalization movement, that people are you know, planting seeds of the new world, that they're creating a world where many worlds are possible. And instead it's really indulging this moment that Jose and I have been talking back and forth for almost a decade now, this fun detournement of the phrase that says, another end of the world is possible. To really understand these sort of deeper passions, this move towards anger, these desires for getting revenge on the people who make us work in such exploitive situations or that are committed to white supremacy in their core. And I suppose that means this project isn't for everyone, but it does mean that we've all found each other because we share these feelings and these desires on a certain level. And that that's really what the project of this subtractive communism is as well. It's about finding others who share these deep desires, these sort of perverse, fugitive, criminal, anonymous moments, and to give form and force to them.
0: This giving form and force is precisely why I think this book is particularly unique in its relationship to the archive. So what I find so fascinating about it is that, for example, you know, Violet was talking about, you know, the relationship between these undercurrents, these historical undercurrents and figures that are in Foucault's work. Right? But they manifest almost primarily as figures to be captured, right? Whether it's the vagabonds in the punitive society, the disabled children in psychiatric power and abnormal, or the levelers and the diggers in society must be defended. And they give us an account of the present. But what I think this book does that is so interesting is while it does talk about, you know, co-intel, military manuscripts on how to handle insurrection, subversion, it posits itself through the motions and eyes of these figures who have to dwell in the metropolis. It doesn't steal from the archive that has to control and command the forces that redirect Bodies, but instead it sees the archive in these movements. So, in a certain sense, it has this sort of dual relationship to being a partisan book of genealogy. But what I think it it has going for it that is extraordinarily rare in political philosophy is that it begins with a refusal of power, which then allows it to say, okay, what can I then say about truth? What can I then say about the political? What can I say about the anti political or opacity? It doesn't begin with a relationship to truth that then says, okay, what can I speak to power? How can I depose power? It refuses the absolute necessity of having a discussion with power. And I love the way in which you say, like, this book has no time for that. And in that sense, I think it has a particularly contemporary relationship to the archive that it's building up and the practices within those archives, right? The anonymizing of victims of police surveillance and police violence, this, the tactical use of anonymity immediately as a practice and also both a weapon in the construction of this underground current. It's not a royal science of political opposition, it's the opposite of that. And I think for that reason, this book in some ways can act as. I think in some ways a really unique kind of inauguration of a call to begin to take seriously and honestly the motions of subversive opposition that manifest not in the everyday, but in the gray night of political control. Because we we can talk about these figures throughout history like, you know, the refugees or the Figure of the scoundrel that uh, Farge and Foucault and Deleuze and others find in their work with the GIP, but they're always going back to the royal document. They're always going back to the lettre de cachet. They're always going back to some means of, of violence. But what we find here is the location and identification of whether it's illegalist violence or subversive anarchist queer violence that manifests from the other side. So, in many ways, I think this book could be called anarchaeological, which I think is a rare assertion.
2: Thank you. Well, that's a lot. I I will not be commenting on everything that you just said, Um, but it did make me, it reminded me uh, of two things. For the second part of the book on criminality, you know, it's largely dedicated to uh, history of the criminalization of sexuality, specifically homosexuality and specifically queerness. There are chapters within that part that are a bit longer, and you have a sustained engagement with Preciado, which I thought was really just kind of the best intro of the pitfalls and virtues of Testo Junkie as experiments, as uh, helping himself to uh, the name of Marcos, but saying that as a deprivatization of Subcomandante Marcos's name as a Spanish person, saying that as a figurehead of an indigenous movement in Mexico. Uh, I thought those passages were spot on. Um, and also reminders, because there were parts of that book that I didn't remember as so problematic. So Preciado it was funny. Throughout that section, there is this figure that I kept thinking of with Chris Chitty, rest in peace, recent publication of Sexual Hegemonies, which is the unfinished uh, PhD dissertation that he was working on at uh, UC Santa Cruz. And it was edited by Max Fox and it was put out. And his text is, Max Fox had a pithy formulation of to to bring together or to return the history of sexuality to a history of property. And the book does an amazing job, even though it's incomplete, at kind of mapping out what that would look like and really posing the question, why at a certain particular period in certain histories of nation states, is it advantageous for a state to grant rights, legal rights, visibility, representation to historically marginalized communities, specifically on the basis of their sexuality, their um, anti-normative sexuality. And the book is largely focused on same-sex practices. And so it is a, it's, it's the perfect kind of marriage between Foucault and Marx that people have wanted for a while. So in some way, when I was reading your, uh, the second part, you could have uh, done a reconstruction or like given your own genealogy, but really with Chitty's publication, it was almost a thing of like, it's true to this theme of the guide and this conceptual persona of the gorilla. You know, how does one navigate a certain terrain, a certain... Um, condition of struggle and condition of production and a condition of oppression and a condition of how you become a subject. It's one of these um, moments, I think, that really pay off because as you're saying, Will, throughout Foucault's entire work, there are these figures that he latches onto. And they're always the surplus, the surplus, they're the marginalized, they're the excluded, Um, or they're the included excluded, or they're the medicalized, you know, whatever apparatus of power defines a certain moment, or a certain regime, the most excluded, the most marginalized, and the most surplus and most superfluous uh, in society are the ones who engender it, embody it in a very material way the most. In a weird way, I think the the theme of a guerrilla guide or guerrilla philosophy that you're trying to build throughout the book, which is predicated on what you call the underground, really comes out again, here in the second part, especially in light of um, thinking of how Foucault treats the subjects of power in his works. And there is the kind of like well-known criticism of Derrida, of well, you know, the the thinker who talks about institutions of power has never said anything about the university. And of course, Foucaultians could say, well, Derrida only can talk about the university and doesn't really have, you know, a stake in uh, institutions of power. Um, But regardless, that's almost a false... Problem. And really, it is a thing of how do you capture the not just lived reality, how do you narrativize, um, but how do you actually develop an actual theoretical framework that accounts for what it is like the self activity of surplus groups, so surplus population. So, another way of saying you could say these are three illegalist histories of surplus population, how to manage and control surplus. And especially with the emphasis on cybernetics, it, it really drives home the point, especially with the third part on blackness and opacity. James Boggs's quote that we're not headed—he's writing this in early '50s—we're not headed to a world of full employment, but full unemployment. He's saying this in, in the beginning of deindustrialization and automation that the future is the future, full unemployment. And so that's true. If Boggs is, is right to any degree, and you know, it seems to be the case that historically, at least, um, there's reason to believe that the most exaggerated version of that isn't going to happen. It's not faded, but some. Tendencies and current of that is play, being played out before our eyes. Then all the more it becomes a question of how do you theorize from the position of, or as that subject position, or an alliance with, or as an accomplice with the history of Circle's population.
3: Yeah, thank you so much for that. I think the one thing that we haven't really commented on yet, too, is the form of the book. So it begins with a real substantive theoretical setup like a like a large introduction that really sets the framework. But the three large sections that make up the body of the book are actually in bite-sized segments, some of them a little bit longer, a lot of them a little bit shorter. And I conceive of them as things you can read on the go while you're on the bus or on the subway, if you're not only like going to work or somewhere where you'd rather not, but uh, also on your way to a rally or a demo or somewhere maybe you wouldn't even tell anybody you're going. And that's an opportunity to insert or interject various forms of life into the project where I can do a variety of modes of writing. Sometimes I'm working through literature. Sometimes it's popular film. At other times, it's just a collection of slogans. Maybe we can use this opportunity to pull some quotes, not only from the book itself, but you all have created such a generous list of uh, notes that you took while reading the book. And so maybe we can just read some of these passages too, as a sort of collage, as it were, of influences, of inspirations, and create a paratextual environment of sort of layering on top of some of the themes we've discussed so far. So maybe I'll jump in by starting with, on page 23, in the introduction, I sort of close out a section by simply giving a whole page of slogans that I think speak to the force of this partisan account for partisans, this sort of not yet world, but of this uh, intersecting series of struggles that don't always look like they're working together, but in fact make up this fabric of resistance and all of the holes that are opened up through this sort of new cybernetic world that we're in. So I look initially, as we talked about, to turn of the century, which is to say 100, 150-year-old classical anarchists who had the fiery slogans, free the class war prisoners, from the international workers of the world. That which is maintained with blood and fire, through blood and fire shall fall, which is from Ricardo Flores Magon. We're at war, but it isn't a war against another nation, but a never-ending war within our own country, from Marie Aki, which is maybe... We're seeing a resurgence of this right now when people are trying to triangulate how to deal with Russia and it's the no war but class war. And then also, everything that is beautiful and great is achieved by the dangerous march of humanity and always against God, masters, and government from Virgilia D'Andrea. Then I move on to the new left who constituted themselves in a time of global wars, creating a sense of independence through exclamations like Art is dead, burn the museums, baby, from the up, up against the wall motherfuckers. Bring the war home, from the students for a democratic society. Be a hero, be a marginal. Graffiti and chants from Brazil in 1968. Peace, as in a gun. Peace now, from the SDS National War Council, or Leonard Peltier Defense Committee's, the Indian wars are not over. Or newer strands that really sort of take up these same notions in our current moment. Act up, fight back. From act up. No justice, no peace, which really congeals around the Los Angeles riots in 1992. They only call it class war when we fight back. Class war anarchists say. We're in the midst of a fourth world war from Marcos. Bash back slogans. Be Gay, Do Crime, which I'll say has been graffitied all around the neighborhood I live in within the last few months. And I see my neighbors complaining about it on Facebook and I laugh. Um, As well as Stonewall was a riot. And then an insurrectionary one I've been hearing from my friends in Olympia say, we're here, we're queer, we're anarchists, we'll fuck you up. Hands up, shoot back. And we cannot accept defeat. Half of us are packing heat which maybe is a little over the top, but I think gives us a a feeling of where things are going and perhaps where things have already been in a lot of other places. Um, So maybe I can invite some of you all to find some of these other quotes to create this sort of woven paratextual collage.
1: I have a pretty big one. It's from page 160. So I'm just going to read the whole paragraph out because I think it's worth it. Abolition reminds us that the common is not a good form of biopolitical production that can be wrested from unscrupulous hands any more than than our plantations, prisons, or the police. As Ti can see, the project of abolition is set against those who desire an incestuous relationship with imperial pacification, that it, that can be identified in those falling over fantasies of biopolitics without police, communication without spectacle, peace without having to wage war to get it. But just as importantly on the level of strategy, abolition also contends that forces of domination will not be defeated through a grand dialectical negation. Rather, abolition offers a different definition of communism, whereby the common is the shared efforts of those who oppose this world. Its coordinates are determined through an ethic of civil war. Its struggle is not an antagonistic battle against any particular institution, but a diffuse warfare against the biopolitical fabric of subject positions that hold the world in bondage. Yeah, I just wanted to read it out because I think that gets the stakes so magnificently right. So I just wanted to read that quote out. I have the whole thing simultaneously underlined and highlighted because it's so good.
2: Um, There are two I had in mind, but I remember in the conversations before this one leading up to this, uh, there was a suggestion from you, Andrew, of like bringing in quotes from things that we were reminded of when reading your text. And one is on the trap that lays in wait when you do this kind of urban guerrilla game of a politics or an insurgency through images. You know, it's not just like a media; it's not just a armed struggle on the ground, but you know, the cultivation of the media persona of guerrilla or guerilla and how that circulates. Um, so there's that. And also, there's one on refusal, and it's from Blanchot's early writings. Blanchot kind of articulating the necessity for refusal to be uncompromising. That is absolute, it's categorical. And later on in these political tracks that are from the same period, he's writing a letter to someone, uh, responding to a letter. Um, and it's a, it's a question about his relationship to his Jewish identity. And he says, by what I mean by this refusal, this communism without heirs, literary communism... All of this is ultimately leading up to a position or it's trying to articulate the fact that even us who were once slaves, you know, exiled, you know, kind of itinerant, even if we're now free, it means we're not free until those who are oppressed are free. And when the other is free, we can't say we are free. It's just that now we can say that we're not enslaved. And so he has this kind of unflinching commitment to this level of refusal, which kind of ties into third passages there where you engaged with an essay on self-abolition written from the perspective of someone writing as a white person and what to do as someone committed to abolitionist politics with the privileges and with everything that comes with being white in spaces of you know revolt, insurrection, etc., I'll read the passage on, on the image and this kind of like duplicitous nature, because I like the practices of how to look at images that come up in the third part as well. So this is from Claire Fontaine, and um, it's an essay where she's kind of just looking at this one rare Brigade's photo of the kidnapping of Hidalgo Maturini, his manager of this CC Men's uh, factory. And it was the first kidnapping, actually, that they did. And he was released like 30 minutes later, but it, it went whatever viral for that time, etc. But um, So she writes that the doctrine of the Middle Ages analyzed in the king's two bodies teaches us that the monarch is a body natural and a body politic, together indivisible, and that these two bodies are incorporated in one person and make one body and not diverse bodies, that is, the body corporate and the body natural. And so moving on, she says, so for the rebrigades, they thought that they could reverse this understanding of if you murder the physical body you can murder the symbolic body meaning if you eliminate the physical iteration of power then you can eliminate the symbolic residual effects of power and so they thought that this practice could take the place of a pedagogy and it needed a pedagogy without quote and it's the slogan striking wanted to educate a hundred end quote this is what was written on the uh, placard that was around this person's neck. So one can read the slogan in the famous 1972 photograph of Idago Macerini, the man who will be freed a few hours later. He looks to his left in the direction of a rifle barrel pointed to his temple, and to his right, another rifle barrel is set against his cheek. A sign hangs from his neck where one can read red brigades on the first line, and lower down, hit and run, nothing will go unpunished. Strike one to educate a 100, all power to the armed people. The prisoner here is no one, he is an example, because he is the object of an exemplary gesture and a subject of a new education, that of the change in the struggle and the balance of power to a thoroughly radical, quote-unquote, testimony through life. And uh, this is how she formulates it, not a just image, but an image of proletarian justice. And so that's how she uh, kind of presents this. And the reason why I thought of this is because the figure of the Gidea here isn't uncritical as it appears in your work. And really you do a good job of like making sure that it's not proposal for guerrilla warfare or some rehabilitation, some crude re- rehabilitation. But what to do with that history insofar as we are the inheritors of that history. And so it comes with certain problems. And so this is the last paragraph uh, which kind of problematizes the figure of the urban Gidea. Um She says... This revolutionary pedagogy of exemplarity brings with it the fact that we no longer see, properly speaking, the singular human that the entrepreneur represents, but we are called to see capital incarnate. In reality, we should not see what we see in this photograph, the frightened looked, the man whom one imagines bound or handcuffed beneath the sign, his body hidden by the words. For the unveiling machine supposed to educate a hundred poses the same problem as all other methods of education, Above all, those with an emancipatory goal, one always sees in them something other than what they mean to show. And what one looks for in them is first and foremost the means of emancipation from this education itself. Thus, the photograph poses a problem. It stages the same myopia of inter-exchangeability normally applied to the bodies of the exploited, but here used on the bodies of those in power. It is a mirror that multiplies the blind spots. The threat of the weapons makes the physiological body shine forth and blots out the abstract body of power.
0: I think I'll try to to return back to the text. And one thing that I find really fascinating, in and I know we've discussed this already at length when it comes to certain desires to govern the revolution and attempts at apprehending the cybernetic in a supposedly revolutionary way to create groups that through what you'll call the logic of the uh, disjunctive inclusion, which we get from Difference and Repetition, Deleuze's Metaphysical Treatise that was also his Doctorate d'Etat and The Logic of Sense. I'm gonna just take one <laughs> sentence rather than a long paragraph, which is just going to be, uh, it's actually outside of the section That deals with the metaphysics of escape and the metaphysics of divergence, but I actually think speaks to it really powerfully, which is ultimately, guerrilla war is a clandestine operation premised on the power of escape, which serves the decisive element in asymmetric warfare, which is this idea to me that a politics of The multitude that we've seen proliferate in response to the works of Roberto Esposito, Antonio Negri, you know, and even contemporary works on body and voice and the multitude is an inability to leave forms of life as that which fracture into free play, an inability to allow free play. And I believe guerrilla logic allows for an actual deposition of the problem of constituent politics, that the dream of a biopolitics without police is simply the dream of police, of an apologetic of the police, to allow for the policing of the revolution to continue. And I think that this book does a a remarkable job of utilizing this logic and in a sense participating in the same intimation or gesture that we sort of find in insinuation because this this book does not take the same route as say this is not a program or the introduction to civil war or even the cybernetic hypothesis where You know, Guattari's later works must be dragged out and shown for their complicity in a particular cybernetic disposition towards democracy. Instead, it allows these aporias to stand front and center. And in my work, this is a problem that has absolutely plagued the biopolitics of disability. The most lauded texts, the most lauded individuals in disability studies are those who, at the end, are always attempting to prove a universality in the common that reifies productivity among aberrant bodies, that, in a sense, simply just inaugurates the same processes that we see starting up from the physiocrats in the 18th century of finding and producing problems. The definition that Andrew gave of cybernetics as a technicality in search of a problem is, for me, the absolute problem that sits at the heart of a lot of simple forms of just cybernetic governance, even when they're oriented in such a way to produce what they think is a sort of unified and peaceful political constituency. So for me, that one sentence spoke out to some issues that I try to grapple with. Absolutely.
3: And there's this challenge where identity has always been a strange category for me as someone who started reading Deleuze quite young, who's getting out of this sort of a Hegelian dialectic of recognition. But it's not something that I want to completely get beyond and sort of tell people that that's just identity politics. I think that the constitutive elements that make up identity are interesting. Resources, sometimes they're also bearing the weight of a history that we're looking to throw off. And so, something like, let's say, race, while absolutely being a scientific creation of the era of colonialism, is not just some empty illusion or construction that needs to be ignored, as if either it's to be reversed through some sort of material process or accommodated for, as it's often done through things like anti discrimination law.
2: I just want to interrupt really quickly. There is an amazing tweet that I saw maybe six months ago that's making the same point. Uh, And someone said, uh, yeah, you know, my apartment's a complete social construct, but I still have to pay rent. And I was just very (laughs) grateful to that person because that is exactly the logic of this social construction of race or whatever of yes, it is socially constructed and the person that it applies to is taxed in some way there they pay a penalty.
3: One thing that I do in the introduction to the section on blackness is I go to this essay about negative identity politics in which it says, how do we find these places where we are situated and mine them for resources to sort of to work and to still keep the vision of liberation and struggle in our mind rather than just sort of representation, accommodation, neutralization to make things irrelevant. And I'll note that it's tough. It's tough. It's so easy to get burned out. So I don't want to overemphasize the necessity for struggle at the expense of people who just you know, need to survive. That there needs to be a logic of transformation. There needs to be a theory of transformation. And I think so many of us no longer have one. I think that's one of the major problems that I see that I've been addressing in this work in particular, that so many people have given up on theories of transformation and all they are willing to do at this, t- this point is co-option, reform, accommodation. And so one of the histories that I find is through, it's actually through mental illness, so not exactly disability, but, but absolutely related to disability. And it's this group, the Socialist Patients Collective, and they disappeared, but they're at the sort of height of this escalating period in Germany. Some of them would go on to join the RAF or some of these other armed groups. And their slogan was make illness a weapon. And their formulation was that capitalism made us ill. And there's this sort of like grand dialecticism to it that maybe we should be suspicious about. But capitalism made made them ill. So that means that they need to deepen and lengthen the illness because it's something that capitalism cannot properly accommodate. It wants us to work. It wants us to be productive. It wants us to be able to treat that illness so we can go back and be you know, contributing members to a society. So instead, they push the other side of the dialectic and they say, well, if it wants us to do all of these things, let's go the other way. We'll be unproductive. In fact, unproductive to the point in which it becomes a problem. In all of these formulations of like problems, the women's question, you know, the quote unquote Negro problem, the idea here is not to stop people from being a problem, but it's to actually to increase the problem. How do we become a problem? And so let me just quote this um, from an art piece that came out of the anti-globalization movement that I have an ambiguous relationship to. It's a little too hip. I note that it's too hip in the book, but I think that it gets at this attempt to create a theory of transformation out of the material we're working with. So it's quite important. So it's from this film, Get Rid of Yourself, by Bernadette Corporation. You can find it online. So They say another world is possible. They in this ambiguous sense, but also they as in the anti-globalization movement at the time. But I am another world. Am I possible? I'm here, living, stealing, doing cocaine, subtracting myself from the bad movie of urban love stories, inventing weapons, elaborating the complex constellation of my relations, building the party. They say another world is possible, but we do not want another world, another order, another justice, another logical nightmare. We do not want any governance, be it fair, be it ecological, be it certified by Porto Alegre. We want this world. We want this world as chaos. We want the chaos of our lives, the chaos of our perceptions, the chaos of our desires and repulsions, the chaos that happens when management collapses. Capitalism defeated traditional societies because it was more exciting than they were. That's the theory of transformation. It was more exciting. Okay. So then their rejoinder, but now there is something more exciting than capitalism itself its destruction. So maybe that's the take home of the book to create something more exciting than this impossible, intolerable, terrible world that we find ourselves in. And imagine the way in which that might be a new way through.
1: That was amazing. I just want to build off of what you're saying about transformation, um, because let me just find that quote. I think it's, again, in the final chapter, Communism at the End of the World, where you talk about reappropriating space. You also talk about how biopower depends on dispossession, on separating people from their primary means of subsistence. And that's how it's able to make us dependent on the state, and how life life outside the state becomes an impossibility. Like bringing this back to the issue of transformation, what can we do today? I think one of the major problems we are facing precisely is that many of the means that are needed to simultaneously live and struggle together are out of our reach. And whenever that problem has come up, there are always these other groups, um, well, we could just godly call them the governmental leftists who basically want us to limit our uh, political horizons to voting for insurgent electoralism or whatever, and getting the right representatives in. Um, But since we are beginning from the presupposition that our uh, refusal is uncompromising, uh, how can the underground grow its strength in terms of appropriating these resources that are so necessary for our survival and that have been kind of taken away from us. What kind of strategies can we look forward to in that regard? That's what I wanted to ask.
2: Yeah, before uh, Andrew or anyone offers a answer, Violet, I just wanted to ask, I thought your opening comments were very good and apt of like what happened before the writing of this text. So the first version of the complete text that I saw, they went through so many changes that, you know, this is a new thing that I looked at the forward again. And the last time I edited it was uh, maybe sometime in 2019 and I was writing about Hong Kong and Chile. And so it really is a book that has lived in this pre then current pandemic kind of context. In the global North, there was a huge amount of reporting on the farmer's strike and this dispute between the Modi government and farmers and agriculture workers, and of course, the way it was portrayed was through very legalistic means. That there are like three principal laws that this dispute is over. But aside from that, the images were fantastic. There were roads that are entirely closed down, but people had you know everything they needed. <laughs> they had like foot washing machines. They had tents. They had food. It was the closest thing to the Paris Commune. I mean, okay, fine. I'm being little facetious. But to your point, how to reproduce your life and how to reproduce a struggle begins from being able to reproduce your life in, in a struggle. Obviously, it shouldn't be the totality of, of that logic. That's how you end up in this self-cannibalization of a group. Given the kind of like uh, historical framing or the metric of Chile, Hong Kong, the cyclist struggle, which presented a really interesting moment where it was exciting to watch the recomposition of kind of lines of struggle, uh, alliance, solidarity, internationally speaking. And precisely because up until then, really as whatever, um, the moment of the 60s and 70s was huge and important. Everyone inherits something from that. But the critical aspect of that inheritance is that you only inherit problems. Autonomy isn't a principle for action. It's it's a problem that is presented to you. And so it's still unclear whether that's a form of organization, is it a form of struggle? Is it a historical tradition, etc.
1: I just want to answer some of the, some of the questions Jose raised. There are definitely some things we could look forward to in the farmers protest in terms of like these things having strategic value in terms of uh, reproducing our lives. There are definitely food kitchens that were set up and almost everyone was welcome to enter those food kitchens. And what was really amazing about the strike was it was mostly of a legalistic character, though there was one moment where it kind of broke off from that, and I'll just come to that, but um, it was mostly of a legalistic character, but we also got to see a very sustained, low intensity struggle that lasted over a year even during the pandemic, when there were lockdowns, etc., So the farmers were kind of like unstoppable. They just kept going on and on. And at, uh, at some point, the media just stopped reporting about them because the idea was like they would go away if they received no media attention. But they just kept on and on and on until the government had to relent. It was about these farm laws, which would like further corporatize the agricultural sector. So... So there was one interesting period of break within that. I just want to mention that, which was twenty sixth January 2021, um, which is Republic Day here in India, when some sections of the farmers broke off from the official representatives and walked to the Red Fort in Delhi. And the whole march took a more insurrectionary character, like buses were vandalized, etc., and that ultimately led to the government uh, accusing the farmers of being anarchists on live TV. And then the farmers' representatives said that, no, actually, these are like bad apples who have come from somewhere else and they don't represent us. Those are like the official trade unions. And this is something that always that we've been seeing for a while now, even during the Shahinbad protests against the Citizenship Amendment Act and the National Registry of Citizens Um, before like the political opposition, the official political opposition took up the protest. There was almost like these uh, spontaneous displays of rage and fury in the streets. Tires were burned and people were occupying spots. And it was the liberal opposition that kind of uh, really suppressed this protest because they were like, you have to, you know, engage in civil protests. You can't do this. And so these people were like, again, picked out, identified as bad examples. There was a Muslim scholar named Sharjit Imam who suggested, uh, he suggested a blockade basically in a city which is kind of important for like the economy. And then he was uh, denounced as an anti-national by the government and then the left the liberals etc i mean the governmental left who have like official representatives in the parliament the liberals etc basically said that well we do not agree with him but we support his right to free speech which amounted to nothing is he he got imprisoned. and um yeah that's that's been a recurring problem over here that like this is huge grip of like legalism and official political organizations on uh, protests whichever sectors it may come from, which kind of always neuters them. Um, but hopefully we are getting to a point where the anger and the frustration, the daily humiliations, the rage that is building up will like overflow and go beyond the grip of these official political representatives and there will be something else, something better to look forward
3: to. Yeah, I'd be curious to hear other scene reports or images that, people might associate with the perspectives presented in the book of the earlier introduction. It actually did a tour traveling through a few of these sites. It began with the question of camouflage, which actually took us to the ZAD in, in France near notre dame de Londres, where there's been a agricultural and anarchist environmentally based resistance to the development of an airport for almost 50 years that was finally canceled, or Macron said he canceled it, I'm not sure if he made it permanent. Every year or two, they would send in about a thousand riot cops to try and clear the forest where these people were squatting and preventing the development of an airport. And there is this heightened escalation of tensions in around 2018 or 2019, where people just started using the land itself against the riot police, you know, because they're all geared up and they've got their clear shields and their face masks that they're trying to, to use. And people just started throwing mud and other natural earth on them, and it completely blocked them and prevented them from being able to clear it once again, in addition to farmers dedicating their tractors to blocking roads and things like that. And then I went to uh, what was going on in Palestine at that time, too. There was a an uprising where people were just storming a few fences. And of course, there's this sort of obscene question of the aesthetics and the line of sight that happens there where not only are there encampments of IDF and other forces sort of literally shooting down on the people um, at the fence, but there are even people who set up in um, scaffolds to watch it unfold as if it was just like a gross, terrible show, so this spectacular element. But in the midst of it, there was this remarkable moment where people were carrying tires to just light these enormous fires that would obscure the whole line of vision that allow people to create a new sense of collectivity. And within it, I found these striking images of a woman in black who had to be old enough to be the mother of a bunch of the teens who are, you know, like throwing rocks and the other things that people do at this type of event. And she almost seemed to sort of become the smoke and become the fire. I think a little of this was a little too new materialist, which is a, a, why I moved beyond it. But I think it captured the politics of material in a way that I wanted to, that in many ways gives the sense of a struggle of this subtraction, of this illegalism, of not exactly creating a new world, but of having these other forms of struggle that are completely unintelligible and rejected by the Leninists and the Social Democrats and the party politicians all alike. Wondering what are what are other moments or other images that struck people as they were reading, uh, either ones included or ones that were conjured up um, that ran parallel. Uh,
2: actually, just the thing you said about the march to return, the great march to return. It was it's funny that you mentioned that when I even from the beginning of the text, when you know you kind of like separate out or kind of analytically distinguish between the reference, possible reference for for the term Gediya. Is it an actual armed individual part of a cell is it a tradition or is it a framework or what are we doing here and by virtue of it being a framework for this text that at least commits it to something that's other than just taking up arms that struggle can look other other ways and actually the pitfalls of armed struggle remain the pitfalls of armed struggle and so to each their own mistakes if they want to repeat that faithfully but the Great Marsh Return is fascinating because uh, maybe six months ago, eight months ago, I was doing this very intensive rereading of like all of Edward Said. And he has an intro to this book called Confronting Empire by a um, renowned, famous like anti-colonial theorist from the Global South, uh, Iqbal Alma, and he was longtime friends with uh, Edward Said. And Edward Said has this story where he says that uh, Yasser Arafat asked Iqbal Ahmad to visit him in Beirut. This is before the 1982 Israeli invasion of Southern Lebanon. And so Edward Said and Iqbal Ahmad go. And when Iqbal Ahmad gets there, he takes a tour, a survey of the Southern region of Lebanon where Israel would eventually invade. And he came back with a full report and said, look, you may have people on the ground, but what are you gonna do about their air force? And Yasser Arafat's like, oh, you know, it doesn't really take it seriously. So the thing that was interesting about this is like the accumulation of these kinds of experiences for someone like Efa led him to propose to Arafat in place of this, what if you organized a march, just, you know, a march to the border, you know, peaceful, you know, it's very, it's very Martin Luther King, very civil rights. Um, and so he's not trying to be innovative. He's not trying to say, oh, this is something new that's never been done. Uh, it doesn't have the pomp and circumstances and the spectacle, it doesn't have the mythology that's being created around the figure of the, you know, someone who's martyred, And of course it, you know, it was never implemented. It was striking to see that happen so, you know, so many decades later, but also striking in terms of longevity and efficacy that a suggestion like this, like, you know, decades later has such an impact. And so then it at least makes you play the counterfactual game, which I think any good kind of reader of history, you have to ask a question What if That if it was done in that context, in that moment, with the strategic impact have been greater than it was, you know, in 2018? These experiences led him to try to encourage Palestinian Gideas to not fetishize their weapons. You know, and even everyone says, like, it's this thing that you do, you just shoot a gun in the air to celebrate. But even just that gesture was indicative of a tendency, and, you know, this is kind of what Rats calls, like, the Leninist break, where Marxist Leninism or Maoism or Trotskyism becomes a catechism. And even ossified. you have to say certain phrases speak a certain way etc etc cetera, et cetera. so that was something that came up as i was reading it and so i'm glad that you brought up the great march to return because throughout the text i kept thinking of iqbal Ahmad as this guatari's kind of correlate from the global south you know this like itinerant but insanely sophisticated theorist strategist and someone who just had an insane amount of time to spend with people Um, and having those experiences be rich, epistemically rich, for the construction of
0: theory. One example I I really appreciated was what we find in the weaponization of the white spectacular economy of exposure. This idea that, and violent reality, that whiteness lays claim to blackness insofar as they force it to participate in the spectacle in such a way That violence on black bodies becomes media that can be filtered through and consumed by and for the strengthening of white identity politics. And one thing that I really loved about the way in which you then utilize the politics of opacity is you show that this fetishization of exposure, this desire to attest in the name of whiteness that one must become white or disappear, the weakness there is this strange fear. Of the disappearance that in fact there's this horrifying element of whiteness that disappearance becomes the object of absolute anxiety and what the project of selectively anonymizing protesters that are worthy in the name of the project to be anonymized and leaving white bodies to be exposed to systems of surveillance shows the absolute limit of this desire to never disappear that the most counter-revolutionary figure here is the citizen that always wants to be present in the Agora and speak in its name and speak through its whiteness. I think that example there, for me, this question of a very particular kind of reversal through weaponization, was something that, that I've always found particularly fascinating and is a current in so much work that is fundamental to what you're discussing in the text. What it makes me recall a little bit about this question of immediate reversibility is the tool prison riot, right? There's this popular, I've not seen it, it's done by HBO or whatnot, so I'd imagine it's not that remarkable. But there's this upcoming documentary on Attica uh, that mentions the tool prison riot. And what I found so fascinating about the depiction of tool that comes from popular media is that it is this external attack on prison wardens, on the administration of life in France at the time. But what the GIP, what Deleuze, Foucault, Genet, and others see is a proof of intimate relationships between different sensitivities that can then, at very particular nodes in the execution of power, be reversed, right? Turn the prison cell into a barricade. Turn the mechanisms that are meant to keep individuals inside the prison, that which keeps the wardens out. And it's these moments of immediate reversibility through intimate knowledge of subjection where one's subjection becomes a weapon, whether it's the hysteric who exposes the psychiatrist as a performance artist who can't particularly identify this or that entity of an ailment that keeps the hysteric confined, or the disabled subject who throws their body underneath the wheel well of a bus in protest of a regime of penalized confinement. These moments in fugitivity that's always in relationship to a reversibility of the weakest nodes of empire is, I think, what makes this text, you know, it's not a transhistorical assertion, right? You make this clear in the first chapter that the cybernetic order has changed. And for that reason, the disposition of the gorilla must change. But there is this kernel that shares a reverberation across all these examples in all of these extremely minor ways that show major incompatibilities and problems for empire. So for, for me, that guerrilla technique spoke to so much of what we've seen come out of radical political movement.
3: Absolutely. There's this ongoing ethical challenge of how do non-Black people interact with radical Black thought and the Black radical tradition. And I think you really hit the nail on the head about how, in part, it's about political strategies complicity with whiteness and to learn that there's another way, even if it's not to imitate or try and set yourself on the same path as Blackness. Fanon was certainly not the first person to acknowledge this, but in his fact of the lived experience of the Black Man chapter of Black Skin, White Masks, he notes that the Black man has no ontological resistance to whiteness. And then he later on, sort of describing the psychic condition of this, says that he feels trapped between nothingness and infinity. And so I rework that through an aesthetic paradigm where I say that blackness gets trapped between hypervisibility and withdrawal, where you know we know about the hypervisibility of blackness from the way in which culture consumes blackness, puts it on display from everything from minstrelry, which I actually go through Older ideas of where forms of protest from 500 years ago in Europe, white men, poor white men usually, would dress up like black women in order to conceal themselves and to play black for a day, but it allowed them to do a form of class revolts and get away with it. But then also that the only forms of visibility that are available to blackness then to get the attention of well-meaning white liberals is to have their death on constant display to have it circulated through the internet, to have a whole emotional and libidinal economy of empathy and care that someone like Cydia Hartman so usefully diagnoses and challenges within scenes of subjection. And so I think with our own version of political struggle, as you note, it doesn't just have to be the critical side. It can be the other one, which is to say, what does it mean to play with disappearance? What does it mean to Accept absence. What does it mean when withdrawal becomes a strategy? And we have plenty of images of this. We have fugitivity. You know, I'm thinking here of Robin Kelly's excellent work in Race Rebels, of forms of black labor resistance, where certainly you can't organize a union to get legal representation if you're not even a human. So how do you use song? How do you use dance? How do you use other forms of cultural politics? To organize and to even not make it intelligible, where it's the point—that's a form of cultural guerrilla warfare that James C. Scott so wonderfully does in uh, his work on the hidden transcript of resistance that you know Kelly appropriates. But then it's also the guerrilla whose strategy is to not appear, to strike quickly and then to disappear. And so it's not to say that we should become guerrillas again. It's failed in most circumstances or it's sort of pushed to its limit. But to find out ways in which this strategic withdrawal or this non-appearance or this other form of selective engagement is really the strategic conditions that we have to engage today. And to not go into it naively to think that it's in everyone's best interest to simply appear in the agora, get counted, and then things just sort of work out in our favor. Because we're in a system of power that thrives off our exploitation and domination and we need to be looking to other resources to know how to move forward.
1: Um, I just wanted to comment because you brought up the chapter on being trapped between withdrawal and visibility. I think this also goes back to an earlier theme of the book. Visibility and opacity, like opacity itself as a gesture of refusal, is is a theme that runs throughout the book from the introduction to the very end. And one of the really interesting points you bring up is anti black history of visibility. For example, the lantern laws and how, you know, Graisson uh, makes the point about unknowability being too against anti blackness or like or even colonialism. I just want to like get some further thoughts for me regarding like the stakes of making the world completely transparent because you know, a lot of supposedly progressive political projects also, like, base themselves on the idea of transparency, including those who have been, up until now, excluded. And, like, for them, the problem is there isn't enough transparency, right? So if there would be enough transparency, everyone would become included. And I think there's a really powerful quote in this chapter on being trapped between withdrawal and hypervisibility where in a statement to the Humboldt Forum, Hartman and Christina Sharp say that, how do we attend to Black death? A question we must return to again and again, since our suffering to the degree that it is recognized is pornotopically exploited in the service of rehabilitating anti-Black and colonial institutions. Don't use our death, our suffering, our lives and our work to regenerate your projects don't turn our flesh into gold again. We do not consent to this. So I just wanted to uh, know your thoughts on like the stakes of this, on fighting visibility as this force of domination that subjects us.
3: Maybe I can very quickly say that he's not a very fashionable thinker these days, but I'm still very inspired by Homi Baba's psychoanalytic reading of the ambiguity of the native from the perspective of the colonizer and how the colonizer believes their own liberal project of rational scientific legibility or uh, knowability enough to be nervous about the native to the point where even if the native makes themselves completely transparent, there's even this supplemental remainder of them thinking that the native could simply be playing along and that this ongoing anxiety that there might just be something else that they'll never know that's always sort of in the background, to me always seemed like a much more exciting case than that of someone like Judith Butler who, where in the play or in the movement of performativity and its ongoing iteration just seems to be a sort of serial performance where for Baba, it's this deep anxiety that shows a sort of weak spot and the incompleteness of the colonial project. And so I would say that in the end, transparency is never possible. It will never completely get there. Even though there's this immense drive towards transparency, it's also some of the weakest portions of the forms of power that rely on it. Just think about this obsession with, you know, big data or quantitative reason that it's always looking for new information. It always thinks that there's something hiding outside it or behind it or and somewhere else, it's, it's never really certain and it's always open to amendment. And so I think that this is precisely the space in which people can and will always hide. And it's where the undercommons or even so much of Fred Moten's work on the cultural politics of blackness or him drawing on the work of Nahum Chandler on the paraontology of blackness. Like, I think this is precisely the point that deserves investigation can continue being worked out. It's not a solution because it's like a topological hole, that can never be filled. But I think it's that outside there that can be productively exploited. Sorry if I'm speaking in sort of abstract theoretical terms here, but I think that that's the direction that uh, the question absolutely took me in.
2: Um, Just to follow up on, and kind of extend some of your comments, Andrew. I mean, it's almost now a kind of well-known, offside,d seemingly maybe for younger generations of theory people in academia, Like a kind of a a performance of rejecting recognition, rejecting the master-slave dialectic, you know, um, citing Kwame Tura, if the United States had a conscience, you know, it would listen to black people, but the United States has none, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so meaning that the position seemingly or maybe for some ha- loses its kind of critical edge. But as you were speaking, I was reminded of a few things. And uh, Violet, the passage where there was the Edith Hartman quote that you read out was spot on. Uh, recently, there was a memorial held in Queens, New York by a South Asian, East Asian group called Red Canary Song. And they were having a memorial for the six Asian women uh, who were slain in the shooting in Atlanta. One of the speeches of you know, eulogies or these like commemorations was emphasizing the point that the person whose name that we were all kind of saying, their death wasn't inherently political. They didn't live to die for this cause, which raises the question, and this ties into the Sadia Hartman point of what is the relationship between the history of the oppressed and desires for transparency and visibility? Obviously, restitution. Sure, that's fine. But restitution, desires for recognition are contingent are incidental to the construction of being oppressed. Meaning the aim for visibility isn't inherent prior to the moment of immiseration, exploitation, etc., And it becomes a path, one path, that has been criticized and rightfully. So towards seeking justice. That leads me to a second point. So I don't know how long it's been, maybe it's been a year, I have to check, since the civil war in Myanmar, Burma has broke out. And very early on, when things started getting heavily militarized and protesters who were just there every day on the streets started fleeing to the rural countryside and then training to become soldiers there were a few groups who started social media profiles and continued to maintain them throughout the course of the war and one of them wrote in a night of just kind of being frustrated with the situation said if we lived in a just world you wouldn't know my name there's no reason for you to know who i am and yet this is what we've been reduced to to visibility to transparency to an image, to a name that circulates and gets tied to a place. But then, you know, it can be framed as well. There are two peoples disagreeing or who have seemingly equal rightful claim to a piece of land, which is, again, how every kind of dispute, whether it's Israel-Palestine, Pakistan, India, any time there has been a partition or carving up of the world by former colonial powers, this is kind of the dominant framing of two sides, you know, equal in strength, equaling right to claim uh, what they're claiming. But all of that is to say that the kind of proclivity i guess of the text for opacity is in some way a better replacement or it it was uh more refreshing than let's say just another criticism of the politics of of recognition of respectability politics i mean there's an entire you know bibliography but it, it does kind of like follow it's consistent with this attempt of theorizing or giving consistency to the actors and agents and their desires With respect to whatever type of subject of power they are made
0: to become. Maybe I'll start the in closing nature of the comments. And uh, I think the one thing for me that this text has allowed me to navigate is to identify where and why the politics of divergence and the politics that allows for a proliferation of free play of forms of life always finds itself ensnared in systems of political revolution that are simply trying to re-inaugurate new forms of cybernetic control right so there was that great comment that was just made by jose where it's kind of hackneyed now to oppose a little bit to oppose the politics of recognition right but instead what we end up finding is and instead what we need to do is take up vibrant materials or a new materialist perspective of politics which then of course inaugurates the control society as that which opposes the historical system of sovereign identification and the perpetual uh, ceremonies of power that come with it. So what I think is helpful here is this book forces its readers in a very partisan manner to come to terms with divergent strategy. I think this book enters into the discussion of what spreading anarchy and living communism can look like in these moments that often look like flashes in the pan but actually gesture to a shared opposition?
1: I guess I'll just extend Will's point. It's a timely book in a very untimely way because we are in a situation right now where it seems to me like that there are two broader left camps that are visible. I mean, usually they are the two broader visible left camps. One is like a very reactionary left camp that we there, there's recently been this magazine called Compact Magazine, named after a German neo-fascist journal, that's being headed by Zizek and Nina Power, um, which is all about like in the face of, uh, let's say, the society of control and neoliberal governance, it's filled with this reactionary longing to go back to the old forms of classical liberal governmentality. The, the strength of the family, the nation, uh, the homeland, etc. a strong social democratic state. And uh, uh, in opposition to that, we have a left that is more broadly agreeable, but that is a bit too toothless and ends up just too easily aligned with positions of control society that simply doesn't go far enough. It remains trapped within the dialectic of recognition in the end this book really shows us a way out of that impasse, either like some form of progressive social democratic reformism or a more reactionary social democratic reformism. These two broader left camps that that are usually found online. But also I think this book is untimely in another way because what is broadly our camp on the left, which is like the non-governmental left, has been having a lot of troubles in recent times with the pandemic, everyone's positions are all over the place. So I think this book kind of sets our priorities straight and kind of remaps the terrain in a way that will help us to actually move forward uh, instead of like like just digging ourselves into a deeper rabbit hole and missing out on the uh, stakes of the struggle as they present themselves. So yes, that's, that's all I want to say. I, th- I hope everyone will read it.
2: Uh, that just reminded me. Just uh, one last tiny follow up. The figure of the Gidea sometimes implicitly suggests themes of conspiracy, conspiratorial communism, which is a phrase that both Andrew and I have used in the past for hostess. Um it, it appears in Jacques Deleuze. Of course, as the recent publication in French of, I guess you call it the Conspirationist Manifesto. There is an act of historical equivocation with this Conspirationist Manifesto that, for all intents and purposes, is just not presence or doesn't contribute to the argument at work in Engels' book and definitely isn't how that type of language was used prior to the publication of that text. Meaning uh, the tradition of the conspiratorial communism comes from particular conditions of struggle where it is illegal. It's outlawed to form a political organization under the banners of socialism or communism, etc. And so hence to advocate for conspiracy in that sense is to advocate for illegalism. And so this gets tied to Blanqui, et cetera, et cetera. However, this newer text seemingly just straightforwardly affirms certain discursive logic of statements, meaning conspiratorial statements, uh, and says that we will just affirm this as the new terrain in which statements and actions will be issued. And so the difference being a tradition of conspiracy coming from the fact that political revolution is subject to criminalization and is rendered illegal. And as opposed to a tradition that seemingly has sided itself with just the oldest conspiracy of there's a secret cabal, they're probably Jewish, and they run the world. And now you can supplant it, if you're in France, with Islamo-leftism, which is the new kind of you know reactionary term to scapegoat marginalize and criminalize, etc. And so recently there have been a few anti-fascist groups in Lyon that have been dissolved by Macron. And this was done by virtue of implementing a law that was supposed to be used to encourage, quote unquote, de-radicalization. And prior to this anti-fascist organization in Lyon were two Palestinian solidarity organizations and one Muslim cultural community, just a cultural community for Muslim people in Lyon, subject to this this kind of uh, dissolution.
3: Thank you so much, everybody. So in the spirit of echoing what Jose said, not to try and expose some conspiracy, but in fact, to sort of become it. Maybe I can end this podcast with the same words that I end the book, which is from Nani Balestrini's The Unseen, written in the aftermath of the autonomous period in Italy, which itself had a tragic ending. And in the ending of the book is equally tragic with the main character in jail. Formally, the book has no punctuation, and so that's something to sort of consider as it's being read. And we'll see how well I do with it. In the evenings after supper, there's a strange silence we no longer call to one another from ourselves. You can see the blue rectangles of the spy holes uniformly lit up by the reflections from the television sets. You can only hear the same monotonous rise and fall of music mingled with voices. The ceiling is patterned with the beams of the yellow floodlights cutting through the huge window, grid pinning you to your bed. You're inside an enormous tin of sardines squashed, pressed together. You're inside a sealed tin, hermetically soldered shut. What is there outside this tin? Who is there outside? What are they doing what are they doing now? Why do they go on doing things, doing all the things they're doing without me? Where am I? What am I? Which is my face now that I have left? Is my face here crushed, flattened, squashed? Oh, they're, they're in prison. I don't know if I mentioned that. I broke the mirror with a leg of the stool. I threw all the pieces down the toilet. I flushed it. I flushed it five, six, seven times. I kept on flushing it, stared at the black hole of the toilet, that black circle where the water rushed down. I put my hand inside it. Then deeper down to feel the bottom, I put my hand in it. I pushed my head down, but it wouldn't fit. It wouldn't go through the hole to come out somewhere else to see out, to see where I am, where you are when we were a thousand, ten thousand, a hundred thousand. It couldn't be true that there's no one outside. It can't be true. And I feel nothing anymore. I no longer hear any voice, any sound, any breath. It can't be true that outside there's only a vast cemetery where you are Can hear you, me. I can't hear. I can't hear you. I can't hear anything anymore. Suddenly, floodlights cut through the darkness. They filled the cell with light. When the opaque morning light slid through the bars and the window grids, things in the cells regained their usual, banal, ordinary appearance. We began again to think and imagine. How could we see how we could make ourselves seen outside that prison that was becoming a cemetery, that place of greatest silence? where no message, no voice, no sound passes in or out any longer, we looked at the problem of how to regain communication with the outside world. We decided to launch new protests to break that deadly science. We began by beating the bars during the night. We'd agree on the time for this. At exercise, we had no watches. We had no alarm clocks. But we could see what time it was on the television sets that kept on all night. Thanks.